What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this rip of TFTC. What rip number was this? Rip 335, I believe, with Brian Gitt. It's a very interesting story. It comes from a renewable background, particularly solar, and we dive into the unspoken trade-offs that that exist with uh, wind and solar, particularly uh, energy policy overall and the economics of what's going on and how we are probably making grave mistakes in terms of energy policy here in the United States and throughout the West. This rip is brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. They have their vault, which is a two or three multi-sig quorum. You hold two keys, Unchained holds one. as a collaborative custody model. Again, it helps you eliminate single points of failure. If you have all your Bitcoin on an exchange, that is a single point of failure. If it's in a single key wallet and you don't have that backup properly secure and you lose that wallet, that's a single point of failure. Unchained is help you here to help you eliminate those single points of failure via their Vault products specifically. They have consultation services if you're a business or a high net worth individual who wants to learn more on how to acquire and properly secure your Bitcoin. Uh, reach out to the consultation team at Unchained. Uh, go check out everything they have going on at Unchained at Unchained.com. That's Unchained.com. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains. One of the hottest brands in the Bitcoin mining space. They're a team behind Slush Pool, which is the oldest mining pool in Bitcoin's existence. It's been around for over a decade now. Uh, they are the team behind Brains OS Plus, Brains OS Plus Firmware. Uh, which allows you to stack more sats with uh, your ASICs as an auto-tuning firmware that focuses on the higher frequency hashing chips over the lower frequency chips, allows you to produce more hashes and therefore more sats. On top of that, it helps with fan management, sound management, noise management, excuse me, and all that good stuff. If you have an ASIC uh, that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not running it, you're leaving sats on the table, it's as simple as that. Go check out everything they have going on at brains.com. That's B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Double I, brains. This trip was also brought to you by good friends at HODL HODL. HODL HODL has a peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchange, a peer-to-peer lending platform. The lending platform's at lend.hodlhodl.com. You put your Bitcoin up as collateral on a two or three multi-sig escrow. You hold one key, your counterparty holds one key, and HODL HODL holds a third key. Yeah, you put your Bitcoin up as collateral, you get stablecoin liquidity in return. You have visibility into that escrow wallet throughout the duration of your loan so they know that your sats are not being rehypothecated. Uh, everything the HODL HODL does is no KYC, no AML, uh, stack Bitcoin and use Bitcoin as collateral in a in extremely private way. They're also the team behind the Baltic Honey Badger Conference, which is back this year in Riga, Latvia, September 3rd and 4th. Uh, very high signal conference. I'll be there. Uh, if you're thinking about it, go to BalticHoneyBadger.com to check that out, to buy some tickets. Last but not least, this trip was brought to you by our good friends at Crowd Health. If you're looking to decentralize your healthcare and eliminate uh, middlemen, particularly in the insurance, healthcare insurance industry that, that typically raise costs and don't really care about you as an individual, Crowd Health is here to help you opt out of that system. Uh, and they're also adding a, a Bitcoin component to it. So basically what you do when you sign up for Crowd Health, you pay a monthly contribution in dollars into your health funding account. This is a custodial account held by a well, 
held by, it's a dedicated bank account where you basically pay a monthly fee and that builds up over time. Uh, they're also going to, uh, for Bitcoiners who want to participate in the Bitcoin community, you pay your monthly um, your, your monthly fee to CrowdHealth. Dollars go to a bank account and then they're also going to take some of that, that monthly fee and put it in Bitcoin and hold that for you as well. When you have a health expense, if somebody in the community has a health event, a broken arm, a knee replacement, uh, you're going to pay the first $500 out of your personal account and then you put that uh, those bills up to the community and it's basically crowdfunding healthcare. Uh, CrowdHealth also steps in and negotiates prices down lower for individuals so that you're not paying as much. They've had 100% of their bills funded by the crowdfunding platform. It's a new way to do healthcare if you want to opt out of the parasitic insurance industry, uh, take more control of your healthcare and work with a partner that's actually going to uh, negotiate on your behalf. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Uh, they are now accepting memberships for their Bitcoin community. Uh, and so starting June 1st, if you use the code TFTC, you can use you can sign up now, um, but the, the community will start on June 1st. And if you use the code TFTC during sign up, uh, the first 1,000 members of this Bitcoin community using the TFTC code are going to receive a discounted membership of $99 a month for the first six months uh, right now uh, for between the ages of 55 and 64 or the ages of 6 and 54 um, if you're between the age of six and 54, it's 175 bucks a month as an individual. Uh, if you're older, it's $325 a month. If you got a family, it's $695 a month. If you have families, uh, four to eight. Um, so that, that first six months, uh, of $99 a month is significant savings. Use the code TFTC during signup. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC to check out, uh, our dedicated landing page where you can learn everything about what crowd health is about and how they're implementing Bitcoin. And you should also check out rip 327 where I sat down with uh, Andy Schoonover, who is the CEO and founder of crowd health. And we talk about the trade-offs uh, of the traditional healthcare system and insurance scam uh, and, and how crowd health is entering the market to try to bring power and savings back to individuals. A great way to opt out freaks join crowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Enjoy this rip with Brian get. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here on a lovely Monday morning in Austin, Texas. I'm sitting down with Brian Gitt, who is in California. It's early for you. Thank you for joining us so early. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. No, I'm as well. Uh, like I was saying right before we hit record, I think, um, obviously, if you've been listening to this podcast in recent months, there's been a lot of focus on energy, energy policy, and the state of the world has relates to idiotic energy policy that has been thrust on on many people throughout the world and I, me personally i think this conversation and this topic is topic is extremely important because we're, we're becoming uh, we're beginning to realize rather quickly that 
idiotic energy policy is having a material effect on the quality of life of humanity globally and, and it is putting us in a very precarious situation. So that's why I'm very excited to be sitting down with Brian, who um, has been trying to help investors navigate the energy sector and highlight where the signal is in the sector and where sensical policy um, could go. Uh, and I, I think your your experience, particularly in uh, the solar industry and your beating of the drum of, hey, we need to focus on nuclear is, is very important. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't want people to make the same mistake I made. I basically wasted 20 years of my life which is a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of years, <laughs> um, working on the wrong problem. And I was doing it for all the right, right intentions, the right reasons. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you're going down the right path. And so anything I can do now to correct the mistakes of my past and to help educate people about um, a, a more effective way forward is what I'm trying to focus on right now. So why do you believe that, that you wasted 20 years of your life? So it really started my the genesis of this whole my whole journey on this really started because I love the outdoors. I love nature. I used to lead wilderness trips for teenagers in Alaska. We'd go 40 days into Alaska and do mountaineering and backpacking, ice climbing, whitewater rafting, all that kind of stuff. I just fell in love with nature and the outdoors, wilderness, the kind of raw energy of it. And I just wanted to do something to protect it. And so it, I got sucked into energy and buildings and efficiency and renewables. Because I thought, wow, this is very tangible. This is pragmatic. You know, people talk about saving the rainforest or, you know, these kind of things that are very distant from most of our lives. But to me, we all live in a house, or most of us, we go to school, or work in a building. Um, we have this direct relationship with the built environment and with energy. And so I, I figured um, if I can help educate and change policy and um, just promote energy efficiency and renewable energy, um, I can make a really pragmatic, direct impact. And so everything about my journey was mission-driven. I wanted to make a difference. And I think my story is is probably similar to a lot of people that are embracing renewables. Like they're they're getting into it for the right reasons. They want to make the world better, right? I, I'm sure there's a few people on the fringes out there that are maybe don't have the holiest of intentions. But I think the vast majority of people are really – thinking correctly in terms of they want to make the world better. Uh, but the problem is I, I capture, I got, I got this mind virus that it seems many other people have gotten recently, which uh, has you view these issues through tunnel vision and really lacks critical thinking on how you understand the energy system. Uh, I actually remember the moment I was sitting in this little auditorium in Prescott, California, uh, not California, Prescott, Arizona, I was sitting with Amory Lovins, who is well known in the energy efficiency space and promoting renewables, and he was giving a lecture, and he just blew me away. He's a really great communicator, for one. I was really young, really naive. I was at that time, I think I was maybe 21 years old, very impressionable, and I was already going down this path, taking all these classes and how do you install photovoltaic systems, uh, really trying to understand how buildings worked and went together to make them more energy efficient. And here I was in this lecture listening to Amory, and Amory was telling me these amazing facts like more sun hits the earth in one hour than we consume in a whole year. So, of course, I mean, that sounds amazing, right? Why wouldn't we leverage that, harness all that energy, especially when it, if we could do it without creating excess pollution? And so I got sucked in and went deep down that rabbit hole. Um, and, 
just went all in on that. And it's, it's a very romantic idea, right? It's, it's, it's almost has a religious tone to it. The way we, as humans, we worship the sun for, for thousands of years in our history and nature. We, you know, we created gods out of nature, right? And so I think there's something deep within us that resonates about being connected to the natural world and doing things in alignment with these natural cycles, the sun and weather and these various elements. And so it hit me on a very, very deep level. And I just went 100% into it. And uh, I, I worked in the industry and, and had many different hats over many over those 20 years. Um, I did everything from I was the executive director of a trade association for green building in California, where we brought together all of the stakeholders. So we worked with the investor-owned utilities like Pacific Gas and Electric and uh, SoCal Edison. We worked with uh, most of the local governments in the state, the state energy office, which is the California Energy Commission. We had a lot of involvement working with Department of Energy, but we also had all the private sector folks. So we had all the production home builders like Pulte Homes and Centex. We had manufacturers like Johns Manville Insulation. Uh, we had large lenders like Wells Fargo Bank and other people that were trying to finance these projects. And what that experience really taught me is how to view these various problems through the lens of all these stakeholders. Um, and so that was just an incredible experience. We were basically developing green building policy in the state of California, as well as programs. So we would train contractors on best practices on how do you make homes and buildings more energy efficient and how to employ renewable energy on those buildings. We developed new financing programs to basically up, cover the upfront capital investment um, in these projects and, and drive down the, the interest rate. Uh, we created a green home label for what it means to be a green home in California called Greenpoint Rated. Um, which is like a lead for homes, kind of, if you're familiar with lead, similar to that. Um, so we worked on all aspects of this, from policy to training to educating the public, developing new financing programs and incentives, all, all of this. Um, and so I, I did that for a number of years. I'll, I'll pause there. I don't want to just ramble on here. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of different directions we can go. No, I love, uh, I want to consider it a ramble at all. I think it's important to set the stage and the context from uh, with your background specifically, because like you said, you went into this rabbit hole with the best of intent intentions, you're mission driven. And that's one thing I get, uh, I get scoffed at a lot because a lot of people think I'm just some greedy oil and gas guy who uh, <laughs> just wants to burn fossil fuels and pollute the environment when I, I would consider myself an environmentalist as well. And I, I, I certainly had these types of feelings uh, in my 20s as well. Uh, I thought that we we needed to be cleaner. We were, we. I mean, there, it's inarguable. There certainly is a lot of pollution in the world and it's something that we should definitely curb as much as possible. But I think a lot of people conflate this idea of renewable energy with reduction in pollution. And that's, they're not always mutually exclusive or they can be mutually exclusive, excuse me, um, where you can reduce pollution and not, um, not embark on idiotic energy policy. And, and that's, uh, I think the context of your background is very important because I, again, I, I think you've seen uh, upfront up, like up front, like the 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 unspoken trade offs that that come with this quote unquote renewable energy and uh, its viability for humanity in the long run. So I think the setting the stage is is very important. I, I guess we could go into like having set all this up. These 
financial products, these um, these uh, renewable standards and stuff like that. What? When did you begin to um, have this feeling that that maybe what you were doing wasn't having a, an overall positive effect on the world? Mm-hmm. Well, in that role it, with that organization, I, I still was delusional. <laughs> so <laughs> I, reality didn't hit me yet. I, it took me a longer time. So my, my next role, I, I was recruited to become the CEO of this consulting firm that was focused on clean technology, efficiency, commercializing new technologies. We did everything from fuel cell vehicles to carbon sequestration at power plants to uh, we would run really large energy efficiency programs to make buildings more energy efficient. And I spent seven years um, leading that firm and growing it. And that's in, during that time is really when some of the cracks in this, this, the overarching narrative started to show and my own belief system started to show. And it happened during the Obama administration in around 2008, which was obviously when uh, the Recovery Act due to the, the huge economic meltdown that was happening. Um, and the federal government, specific, specifically Department of Energy, wanted to infuse the economy with a bunch of money to put people back to work, to create jobs, could stimulate that. Um, and so one of their strategies, obviously they had many strategies, but one was to pump a lot of en- uh, money into the energy sector specifically. And so my firm, uh, this was partially uh, the benefit I had because I had all those relationships through my prior role um, within government and within utilities, et cetera. Um, I was I was able to build this coalition of stakeholders really quickly because these were competitive solicitations from both Department of Energy, the California Energy Commission, and also local governments in California. And billions of dollars were flowing. And so you had to jump on it quick. And I brought some of these relationships to bear. We put proposals together. And my company ended up winning some pretty substantial contracts. Just our firm alone won a $60 million contract to be the prime contractor to help implement uh, very large-scale programs throughout California, which included working with all the investor-owned utilities, local governments, and and private sector stakeholders. And I always thought the problem was, and this was one of my false beliefs, that if we just had enough money to implement these programs, we could scale it, we could make them really effective. But what this time period really taught me in working on this for several years um, is that money was not the problem. <laughs> the problem was the the core design principles in the in we were lacking critical thinking on on how to really address the problem. And in that program, we we pulled out all the stops. So we built huge loan loss reserve funds to drive down the cost of financing the upfront capital improvements um, for to make these projects happen. We developed uh, standards for the programs. We did quality assurance. We did all the training. We did massive amount of community outreach and engagement to the general public, as well as to the building trades. And we ran this program for years and still around today. It's called Energy Upgrade California. And it's it's grown and changed over the years. And what it we had these big, bold, audacious goals for the program about how many homes were going to be upgraded, how many buildings were going to be uh, become more energy efficient. And the reality is the program just did not deliver at all on the anticipated goals that we had hoped. And it was really uh, telling because the government agencies wouldn't, they they couldn't take that in really. I mean, they just kept spinning success stories. Like they said, oh, look at all the energy saved and look at what we've done. And I was looking around and go, what are you talking about? I mean, this to me, I, I felt I felt partially responsible because I was, you know, I was one of the main people that helped 
bring this whole strategy together and promoted these ideas. And when I was seeing it fail and fail and fail, it was uh, it, it really rattled me, right? Because I, you know, I had all these beliefs and ideas about what it would take to make the program successful. And what I was seeing in the real world, in the most progressive state in the United States of America, California, with un, almost unlimited resources, with all of the support of state, local government, utilities, private sector buy-in, these things did not scale. These things did not work. And so that was really eye-opening. So what were some of the specifics of, of the failure of, of these projects? How, uh, what was preventing them from scaling and, and how were they not working? The main issue is they didn't provide enough, enough economic value to consumers, to homeowners or to building owners to move forward on these projects without massive rebates, incentives, and low-cost financing. And even when they did, it was mostly free riders. And what I mean by that is, let's, let's just take a house, a typical home, a single family house, and we would be offering up to sometimes $5,000 worth of rebate money to make them more energy efficient. So to upgrade your heating and air conditioning system, to put a new insulation into the house, do all of these various energy efficiency measures. And we would offer uh, subsidized financing and up to like $5,000 worth in rebates, like direct rebates, which is pretty substantial. Now, these projects on average can cost, you know, depending on the size of the home and in some unique aspects to it, sometimes fifteen dollars to $20,000 to put these improvements in. Well, the energy savings that you're going to derive from implementing these projects never pay that back, <laughs> or it takes so many years to pay that back. I mean, there's a lot of great reasons to do these projects. I mean, adding insulation to your home is, is excellent, not only because you increase the thermal comfort of your home, you have better acoustics, you don't hear all the noise pollution from the street, um, it's more comfortable. There's good reasons to do it, um, as well as upgrading your heating and air conditioning system. But economics generally is not the driving factor. So what we found was the people doing these projects had really old furnaces or really old air conditioners. They needed to replace them anyway. So they're just taking advantage of the government subsidies saying, well, we got to replace this thing or we're thinking about replacing this thing. We might as well do it now and grab this five grand from the government um, and take it. And I don't blame them. I, I would do the same thing, right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone like they're doing something wrong. Um, so all the incentives were were misaligned to develop a scalable program. If you want to scale something, the market has to pull it. You need to provide enough value to a customer that they want to buy it and they, they can uh, internalize that value. And these programs did not do that. They were propped up by subsidies and therefore only the people that were already likely going to do these projects or already had so much money they didn't really care about the financial incentive in terms of the savings would do the project. So it's mostly wealthy people. We are in essence subsidizing wealthy people to upgrade their homes, similar to how we're subsidizing wealthy people to buy Teslas or other electric vehicles uh, in solar panels today. So it's, it's kind of a regressive energy tax on poor people or lower income people that can't afford to, you know, these 15 or $20,000 improvements and they're, they're getting subsidies from the government. It's, it's kind of uh, really obnoxious when you zoom out and think about what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny how when the government steps in and offers all these quote-unquote incentives and subsidies, uh, people are going to figure out a way how to, how to game the system and find the loopholes to, to better take advantage of it for themselves. And, and again, it's a, it hasn't produced the, the outcomes that 
the government would like. And I think that is honing in on like the micro scale, like a house by house basis. But when it comes to like overarching energy policy and the, these push for solar, wind and EVs specifically, like yeah, there there's a lot to be said about the the economics of these systems and whether or not they're driven purely by subsidies. Uh, is is that the case on the macro scale too, in terms of trying to transition grid baseload um, fuel sources from fossil fuels and nuclear to to wind and solar specifically? Yeah, I mean, when we look at this, we really we have to acknowledge all energy sources have trade offs. Every single one of them, whether it's fossil fuels, nuclear, solar, wind, geothermal, no matter what it is, they all have pros and cons in in costs and benefits, and we need to weigh those. But I think what we're oftentimes missing is we've uh, started to pick a winner just because of a certain narrative around because it sounds good or makes us feel good versus fully evaluating it based on really uh, effective criteria. So I think the first thing is zooming out and what is the goal? What are we actually trying to achieve? Why do we even care about renewable energy? Like, what is the point of all this, <laughs> right? It's a useful question to ask. Um, I mean, I think the goal is we want to protect and improve the quality of human lives, and we want to protect and improve the quality of our environment. Okay, I think most of us can agree that's the goal, right? So oftentimes, I think we, we skip past that and lose total sight of that. So my question is, all right, well, what's the most effective way to reach that goal? And then what are the evaluation criteria that we should be using to assess any technology? I don't care what it is. Um, I'm agnostic on technology. I really don't care. I just want whatever's going to be most effective. And I think there's really five criteria that we need to apply to use critical thinking and evaluation of any energy technology. The first is energy security. If we don't have energy security, we don't have a country, we don't have a civilization. And if you don't believe me, <laughs> just look around and read a history book because, man, we would... Europe would all be speaking German if it wasn't for United States oil and gas. I'll tell you that because during World War II, um, the United States, there was about 7 million barrels of oil um, that were consumed in World War II to basically fight off the Germans. And 6 million of those, or basically almost 90% of them, came from the U.S. So if U.S. oil and gas hadn't supported the Allies, um, Europe would all be speaking German right now. Uh, and this goes to every war in human history. Uh, it's all about the ability to um, project and harness energy. To harness and project the energy in the world is how you protect your yourself, your civilization, versus being invaded and taking over and conquered. So that has to be the foundation because if we don't have that baseline of energy security, then we don't have anything, right? Everything else is noise. So to me, that's the most important criteria. You have to weight criteria too. They're not all created equal obviously. So to me, that's number one. The second criteria is reliability, right? Because we, in, mo in modern world, we use energy 24-7, 365, and we're spoiled rotten here in the United States and in, in most of the Western world because we just, we just take it for granted that you flip a switch, you turn your air conditioner on, you want to go in your car, whatever it is, the energy is there whenever you need it. That is not the case in most of the world. I mean, most of the world lives in energy poverty. Over 3 billion people don't even have access to adequate energy. It's about the amount of American refrigerator. And less than a billion of them don't have any power, no electricity, no gas, no anything um, to basically sustain themselves in their lives. And so if we, don't, if we start eroding the reliability, 
we are going to have massive consequences. And you're seeing it in Germany and in Europe right now. Factories are shutting down and halting. It's like fertilizer factories the, you know, to create our food system are not able to operate. They, smelters are shutting down because they're not able to operate. If you can't operate energy-intensive energy industries, um, you can't function. So you need to have reliable electricity and a reliable energy source for that. You can't just have it on, on and off. That's why countries are poor. That's why when you go to Africa and some of these other um, third world developing areas, the re a huge part of why they're poor is because businesses can't effectively operate there because they don't have a reliable energy grid. So reliability is number two. Number three is affordability. Um, if it's so expensive to make energy, then it really limits what you can do with it. You can't. That's why they're shutting down these plants. You can't make fertilizer right now in Europe, in many parts of Europe, because it costs more to make the fertilizer than you can sell the fertilizer for. So if, if it's that expensive, it just basically um, inhibits what you can do with energy. So affordability is key. And this is just crushing on lower and middle income folks as these utility bills go up. I was actually retweeting one of your uh, tweets. I think it was over the weekend or maybe on Friday about Germany in that Germany's uh, energy costs have gone up 87% year over year. Which imagine if you're on a on a budget just trying to feed your family, and all of a sudden your energy bills in the winter are going through the roof, and you can't even afford to to heat your home to protect your family. I mean, this is survival. This isn't this isn't just nice to have. This is are people going to die? Are people just not going to be able to function well? Um, so that's the third one: affordability. Fourth criteria is emissions, um, and this is important. No one wants to breathe dirty air. I mean, we all want clean air. I don't. I haven't met a single person <laughs> that <laughs> enjoys, you know, just breathing dirty air. And you know, but there are trade-offs, right? Coal creates pollution, air pollution, and the reality is, is gotten cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. The more we had the money to put emission control technologies on these plants and scrubbers, and now the air quality in the United States is much better than it was 20 years ago. So there's ways that you can still burn energy sources and be responsible and reduce pollution. And usually it goes through an evolution. And then the last criteria is land use, right? You don't want to cover all of your land, destroy all the habitat, basically uh, killing all the animals um, that live on that land by taking up excessive amount of, of and using too much land. And especially in parts of Asia and in Europe, they don't even have the land. We're blessed here in the U.S., where we have the benefit of a, this just a privileged geography and abundant land resource. Most of the world doesn't even have that. But we don't want to cover our prime agricultural land in Central Valley, California with solar panels. That's the biggest waste of resources on both sides. I mean, so those are the kind of criteria when we zoom out, we think, okay, what's the goal? What are the criteria we're going to evaluate technologies and look at? Um, now, how do, we, how do all of these technologies stack up across these, right? So uh, I'll pause there, but that's kind of how I think about when you're looking at an energy system, how you would evaluate a, a various approaches to solving this problem. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very robust analysis and criteria to, to think about. And I think that's a very good way to present this to the public. Like, hey, we need energy. <laughs> you, you like flipping a switch and having your light turn, lights turn on. Uh, is, this is obviously important. And that's the, what I think the biggest problem in the whole debate around energy today, particularly here in the West, is this, it's very 
binary. It doesn't take that nuanced criteria that you just described into consideration. It's either green and renewable or it's dirty and unusable. Um, it's going to kill us all. And I, I think setting the landscape with those five criteria is very important to help frame the conversation. And, and land use specifically is one that uh, many people don't talk about. And, and that really what underlies that, that land use when you compare like a natural gas power plant to a, a solar um, farm, like land use for solar, there's a ton of land, land that you need to use for wind, same thing. And when it comes to like a natural gas or nuclear power plant, it's significantly less land that is necessary to, to bring a considerable amount of energy to market. And that gets into the whole concept of energy density, which is another area where, where people really don't uh, consider the the impact of how dense a particular fuel source is. And that's one of the weirdest things about this transition to wind and solar that I've been trying to beat the drum on the last few months more particularly is what we're doing is regressing to a less dense energy source uh, or less dense energy sources and wind and solar particularly away from nuclear and natural gas, which are significantly more dense. And when it comes to actually getting leverage on a, a uh, molecule um, that, that leads to electricity, there's, there's no doubt that wind and solar uh, are, are far behind other reliable sources that exist out there. Yeah, a wind farm uses 360 times the amount of land as a nuclear power plant to generate the same amount of electricity. And a solar farm uses 75 times the amount of land as a nuclear plant for the same thing. Uh, a natural gas, well, let's just take a wind farm, a 200 megawatt wind farm, takes up about 13 square miles. <laughs> That's 13 square miles, I mean, imagine that, versus a natural gas power plant of the same generating capacity could fit in a single city block. Right. So when we start to think about resource impacts, uh, not only in all the materials that it takes to actually build these machines and deploy them, but all the land that we're taking up is just an immense amount of land. And you're usually destroying either farmland, forest or, or native habitat for species. Um, and this this extends beyond just renewables. Like I'll give you an example. Two weeks ago, I was down in Kern County, California, and Kern, I was visiting an oil lease down there. Uh, my my friend Mike Umbro um, is running a new operation. Yeah, you know Mike. Okay, Mike's awesome. been on the show. Mike, had, oh, we great. had a great conversation with Mike on the show. Big fan of Mike and what he's doing. He, yeah, so I went and spent some time down there with Mike. You know, I met him on Twitter as well, and he's like, "Hey, you want to come down and see my operation, my Elise?" I was like, "Yes, I will be down there next week." So I went down and met up with him. We had a great time. And one of the things that struck me, you know, here in Kern County, where his oil lease is. When you walk, when you go out there, the first thing you'll notice is there's not a single tree or plant as far as your eye can see. It's the desert in California. It's like what maybe some people are familiar with Nevada desert. It's just like barren, doesn't look like there's anything there, right? Now, obviously, there's life that lives there. But the first thing I saw when I, I stepped foot on his oil lease was three people, three biologists doing a survey, a bio, um, a, basically a survey of endangered lizards on the property because what they were doing is they were trying to identify where the endangered lizard burrows were so they could mark off with flags and put fencing as they developed the site to avoid disturbing the lizard burrows. Right. I mean, think about this. This is in this, I'm, this is a good thing. I'm not saying this is bad. This is good. This is being responsible uh, company and how you operate a business. 
But what is so hypocritical about this whole ridiculous policy, energy policy in California, is because of these onerous, strict requirements, they're pushing all oil and gas um, production out of the state pretty much. I mean, it's almost impossible. Mike has spent years trying to get this thing permitted, even when they're doing every go bending over backwards to employ the best practices for the site. So, but California consumes more fossil fuels than just about any other state. They're the number one consumer of jet fuel, the number one consumer of gasoline, but they're sitting on 1.5 billion barrels of oil, mostly in Kern County, under the desert, right? <laughs> it's crazy. So now we're importing it. So California gets 50% of its oil. It comes on crude tankers from Ecuador, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. 50% of it just from those three. Number one is Ecuador. So what we're doing, instead of drilling in the desert where there's no plants and trees in a very responsible way where we're, we're carving out so we don't bother the lizards. We're slashing and burning the rainforest in Ecuador where they have no regulations or requirements. There's not, they're not containing the oil nearly as responsibly as they are here. They're flaring like crazy because they don't have the flaring. You're not allowed to flare uh, in California, which is basically just burning off unwanted natural gas when you're drilling for oil. In Ecuador, they don't they don't believe in that. They flare as much as they want, right? Um, so you have all the air emissions from the flaring. You have all the destruction of the Amazon rainforest that's happening unnecessarily just because California wants to feel virtuous and export or import their oil. Then you put it on a crude tanker and you burn fuel oil to ship oil halfway, you know, across the ocean, whether it's coming from Iraq, Saudi Arabia, or Ecuador. Um, that is the most polluting of the fuels, much more so than gasoline that we use in cars and trucks. Then the tr those ships come into the Long Beach port of, in Southern California, and they're emitting all this air pollution around the disadvantaged communities, usually communities of color that are in around the ports in Long Beach that have some of the highest pollution levels in the state, right? It's actually a big problem, air pollution, because of all the ships coming in. So this is an example of a policy that is so counterproductive um, and we could reduce CO2 emissions, reduce air pollution, reduce um, impact on the environment by just drilling in a responsible way in Kern County, California, instead of doing all that crap. And that it just drives me nuts. Like, the, why are we doing this? The people that say they're doing this to basically help reduce CO2 emissions, they're emitting more CO2 emissions. They're, they're, they're not saving anything. So that, that's just a really tangible example just from oil, but this applies obviously across all of these types of energy sources. Yeah. And, and it can also probably lower costs. Like we were saying before we hit record, there's parts of California that are seeing $7 and up gas. Uh, some places it's more than the minimum wage. A gallon of gas is more than the hour minimum wage here in the United States. It's, it's completely befuddling, honestly. Like how in your mind, like have we gotten to this is a pure virtue signaling is like there's a lot of people saying controlled demolition i'm not gonna put words in in your mouth but it, like it just it, you look at the situation and everything unfolding that particular example um of california shipping in oil on tankers from ecuador saudi and iraq is it, it just seems so clear-cut to me at least maybe i'm seeing things more clearly than others but it, it like it, it seems like a very cut and dry like this is much better than what we're doing now like why what is 
what is it? Is it pure virtue signaling, political unwillingness? Uh, is think, there inability? You know, I, <laughs> I think there's a few things happening, and I, I don't want to just broad brush and stereotype everyone, obviously, but I think the majority of people, this really aligns with my own personal story, my own experience, because I was one of those people, right? So I'm not really pointing fingers and saying these are horrible, evil people, because I was one of them. I, I believe these things. So, you know, and I, I, not only did I believe them, I invested 20 years of my life professionally working to pr be a proponent and champion for those ideas. So I think at the core of pe the people that were like me, which I think is the majority um, out there, um, I think it comes from a deep desire uh, to have a sense of meaning and purpose, honestly, to contribute to something bigger than yourself and to have a positive impact on the world. I think that's the underlying desired motivation. And I think that what is happening is it's easy just to kind of consume this narrative about solar wind and electric vehicles. It feels good. You feel virtuous by supporting this. And you don't actually have to do the work and think critically about, you know, in, invest the time to educate yourself about how the energy system works, what are all these trade-offs that we're talking about, and um, really do a full evaluation. Because let's say, I mean, most people, they're busy. They have kids. They're, they have work. They're just trying to keep their household up. They don't have a lot of extra bandwidth and time to invest in exploring <laughs> in depth these topics. So... I think people are outsourcing this function to some political elites, to um, some thought leaders in the space, to environmental organizations, and it's having really dire consequences because these ideas are not good ideas. <laughs> these ideas can really threaten the very prosperity of our civilization, and these ideas kill people, right? And we're starting to see that around the world right now. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I decided to really speak out so vocally about this is one, because I contributed to the problem. I was part of the problem. But two, I understand the mindset. I understand how people that view the world think. And to be honest, I was just deeply ignorant is even working in the energy industry. I mean, I helped develop new technologies in clean tech and such. And I was deeply, deeply ignorant of how the energy system works because I had my blinders on. I, I didn't. Because I was not allowing myself to think critically, really delve deep into some of these um, concerns because I just wrote them off. I just said, oh, these people, it's just the greedy fossil fuel companies that are just trying to rape and pillage the land and take advantage. I don't need to study what they're saying because they're just wrong. I'm right. I'm the hero. They're the villain. So I think a lot of it is around that is the sense, this deep sense to try and find meaning and purpose to contribute. But people are outsourcing this function. Uh, so they get all the dopamine hits of feeling virtuous uh, without doing any of the work, right? Yeah. <laughs> actually investing the time. Yeah. No, it's, and again, it's hard. I don't want to like have like a woe is me moment. Like I've been, again, like talking about this stuff very aggressively for the last few years. I started with like ESG. And then as I dove down, like I was ignorant to how the, energy industry worked and, and how electricity actually gets delivered until I fell down the Bitcoin mining rabbit hole and was forced to learn more about it uh, just because of my job. And uh, it's been, uh, again, I, I've had a lot of people attack me. I've had one-star reviews on this show on, on Apple Podcasts because people hear me talking about this stuff and beating this drum. And they're like, you're, you're just like an evil greedy, like you're using natural gas to mine Bitcoin. So your, your incentives are not aligned. But again, this 
take the Bitcoin mining out of it, like I've come to realize that this is a very big human issue that if not uh, identified and uh, we don't change the tides rather quickly, like we're going to find ourselves in a situation in the next decade, two decades, where you have deep human suffering because of these idiotic policies. And I agree, like, again, like I'm an environmentalist, I want to be as clean and efficient as possible. Um, but it, like I've come to learn, as you have as well, that like what is being preach is not actually what's playing out in real life. The the models and the narratives just do not compute with reality. And I think if we are going to succeed as a civilization moving forward, you have to come to grips and, and identify and recognize this and just accept what is the cold, hard truth of the world and adapt to that. If not, again, it's a, the future is not as bright as it could be if we were focusing on the, the five criteria that you mentioned earlier in this conversation. And that's another thing that really uh, has uh, hardened my resolve in this whole conversation is, is nuclear, right? Like why, like how has nuclear gotten to such a point where it's so villainized when again, it's the densest form of energy that we have on this planet, arguably the cleanest form in terms of CO2 emissions. And yet everybody pushing wind and solar is not also pushing nuclear as well. Why is nuclear been demonized yeah, nuclear is the most powerful reliable low emissions energy source we have and it is inevitable i believe that we will have you we will power future civilization on nuclear power i don't think there's any doubt in my mind about that but the question is how much suffering and how much hardship do we have to go through until enough people realize that and and start to embrace it and we've we've kind of we've gone with in fits and starts on it the genesis of the downfall of the nuclear movement really was uh, in the 1960s and starting in the late 50s when people were conflating nuclear war with nuclear power, right? So the anti-war movement um, has invested so much time and energy into fighting against nuclear weapons, which understandable, right? No one wants the world destroyed by nuclear weapons and nuclear war. Um, but they made a category error of assuming that nuclear power stations and power plants would lead and support nuclear weapons and nuclear war. And so I think the genesis of it and the association is like the spillover effect of, of that was really the beginning of it. Because even the environmental organizations originally, like the Sierra Club and folks, they were pro-nuclear um, way back in, in decades ago. So um, the reality is, is that nuclear by far is the safest way to, to make energy today. And this is just a statistical fact, right? I mean, nuclear has been in commercial operation for 70 years Um 20% of the United States electricity comes from nuclear power. A lot of people don't know that. They think, oh, they don't really understand the magnitude, even today, of what we have almost basically 100 nuclear power plants generating 20% of our electricity today, which is showing that it's been operating safely and effective. Not one person in the United States of America has died due to nuclear radiation effect. Not one. We had one nuclear accident in 70 years in, in the U.S. That was Three Mile Island. And no one died in it, right? It's hor horrible, a terrible incident. You never want to have accidents. But let's be real. I mean, we have industrial accidents all the time of ki large chemical plants, industrial facilities. People, I mean, it's an unfortunate reality of modern, of when you build very complex machines that sometimes you have accidents. Um, 
But now the technology is so much more sophisticated than it was when these original plants were built and the safety mechanisms. I mean, we didn't, we barely even had computers that worked well then. So, I mean, <laughs> to compare uh, plants that were built in the 1970s with a plant that we could build today is just insane. But even using the old technology, it's very safe. You know, in Fukushima, um, which is another horrible disaster. Only one person died from radiation exposure. Yeah, people died in the evacuation due to the earthquake and tsunami and all of that, but that wasn't due to nuclear radiation. Um, and you know, the the biggest Chernobyl disaster, obviously, they they did not have the containment systems that are used uh, across the industry. They were like everything that you shouldn't do, they did basically. And even in that horrendous disaster, only about two hundred people have died due to radiation effects in in the original accident. And the people that did get uh, exposure and have some cancer risk, um, it's thyroid cancer, which is generally not fatal um, and it's very treatable. And it's a very small percentage of people that are actually having adverse life impacts um, in the scheme of things, right? So you have it's the same reason why some people are more scared to fly in an airplane than drive a car. It makes no sense statistically or just when you evaluate risk. But there are people that are scared to fly. They think it's more dangerous, right? But it's not. I mean, we know that very few people die in plane crashes, but tons of people die. Like, what, 30,000, 40,000 people die just in the U.S. in auto accidents every year? Yeah. So it's the same thing applied to nuclear, where people are not applying statistical thinking and risk assessment to the level of uh, potential risk involved in this. Um, so there's, I, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be building nuclear, especially in Western developed nations like the U.S., Europe, Australia, Canada. Uh, we should be going all in. And the reality is uh, China's going all in. You know, they're building 150 new nuclear power reactors um, right now. Uh, South Korea is going in. Other countries in the Middle East are building. Um, we're the only ones that are stagnant. And not only stagnant, we're going in reverse. You know, we've shut down Indian Point, New York. That supplied, I think it was about 25% of the electricity of, of New York City. Um, and what do we, re they're just replacing that clean energy with fossil energy anyway, and their emissions are gonna go up. <laughs> they're not replacing that with solar and wind anyway. Um, and now we're facing the potential shutdown of Diablo Canyon in California. It, pr it produces about close to 10% of the in state electricity production in the state. And, you know, at a time where we're facing grid reliability issues and shortfalls, they're talking about the California independent system operators saying, it's telling us, warning us that we're going to likely have rolling blackouts due to not having enough electricity. They're even, even considering shutting down a safe operating nuclear plant that's supplying almost 10% is the height of insanity. Like, why are we doing this? This is absolutely crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, you just look at, you mentioned Germany a bunch of times. You look at what they've done over the last two decades. They've decommissioned a number of nuclear power plants in favor of, of wind farms, and it's created disastrous consequences for them. They have the highest electricity cost per kilowatt hour in the developed world because of this transition. Um, it's. I think Germany is the best example because there's no country on earth that has invested more time, more energy, and more money. They'll, they'll will have spent by 2025 the equivalent of $550 billion to build a redundant grid of solar and wind power. And when I say redundant, I truly mean redundant because when you analyze the fossil-fired power plants and kind of the infrastructure, they've had to keep 90% of all their fossil-fired 
coal-fired power plants, 90%. So they spent, they're going to spend $550 billion to build a redundant grid. Solar only works 12% of the time in Germany. 12%. Like, that's crazy. They're, they're over-investing in this unreliable, low-grade power source that's working 12% of the time. Wind, they have massive wind droughts. In Europe, in 2021, we had six months of wind droughts in Europe. In UK, the the wind turbines in the UK operated at 32% less power generation than they were expecting just in 2021 due to the six-month wind drought. And going back to Germany, you you had uh, retweeted something I I commented on one of your posts over the weekend. This, I think, is the best example because people have this fallacy thinking, well, we're going to develop battery technology and then batteries are going to kind of gloss, you know, help kind of make all of this go away, all this unreliability issues go away. We'll be able to use batteries to store it when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. Well, that's absolutely craziness, right? Germany, they actually looked at 35 years of data. I'm not talking about models of the future or estimating what could happen in the future. There was this uh, group that put together, they went back 35 years in our interval data. So they looked at every hour over 35 years. And what they found was within that period of time, there was a period of 61 days where you had scarce wind and sun, basically wind droughts and just cloudy days and just didn't have the, the resource there. So what that actually meant when they calculated, well, how much, how many batteries would we need to cover that 61 days with just less sun and wind? What they came up with was 24 days of energy storage. That's 36 terawatt hours of energy. 36 terawatt hours of energy, 24 days, that's three, over three weeks of storage would be required for them to go to this 1%, 100% renewable energy fantasy goal that they have. So when you, when you really think about that, you step down, they haven't in right now, guess how much uh, battery storage is available in Europe, not just Germany, in the whole of Europe today. It's one minute and I think 22 seconds of battery storage uh, of, you know, available, basically in comparison to their, their total grid uh, needs. So, man, I mean, the entire continent of Europe has one minute and 22 seconds of storage. Germany needs 24 days, just that one country of energy storage to go to this ridiculous fantasy of 100% renewables. So that gives, the, that gives you the orders of magnitude and scale that we're talking about. Um, and the cost of batteries, the amount of mining um, and, and chemicals and everything that's involved in making that is just astronomical. Like, why are we even doing this? This is the most backwards way to even think about designing an energy system that is so harmful to the environment, so resource unnecessarily extractive, and basically delivers an inferior low-grade product. It's inferior in almost every way. So why are we doing this? That's a, that's a great question. But that's well, Maybe we can put this to rest too, but we just haven't hit the... the we're still going down uh, Moore's law curve, like we're going to hit uh, efficiency gains uh, in the future that, that will make that, that possible. Is this true? Is there a future to, to steel man the argument in which the efficiency gains in terms of the amount of energy that solar panels and wind can harness and the amount of energy that these, this battery technology can store, is there uh, gains that could be made over the next couple of decades that will make this a viable option? Solar, wind, and batteries are getting more expensive now, not less expensive. So th- this is a, an absolute category error of thinking there is no Moore's law that applies to the, <laughs> these technologies. So 
<clears throat> commodity inflation, as, as we all know, is happening around the world with the, the core ingredients that go into making these things. You know, 50 to 70% of the cost to make a solar panel and wind turbine is just all of the raw materials, the minerals, the energy that goes into making it. And when the cost of those goes up, obviously the cost of solar and wind has to go up. The largest wind turbine manufacturers in the world are losing money on every wind turbine they make right now. They're in negative profit margins, right? The, the entire industry is propped up by this whole network of uh, production incentives and tax incentives, et cetera, and subsidies. And without it, it would just collapse overnight, right? And, and so it's, it's not grounded in any solid economic viable foundation. And so these things are getting more expensive overall as, as we go forward. They're not getting less expensive. And the reason why it's true that the cost of a solar panel or the cost of a wind turbine did drop like 80% or so over the last decade. So that's absolutely true. Now, why is that? Well, when you actually peel back the curtain and look for the, the overarching reasons why, the main reason why is because energy cost was low, right? We had really cheap energy over the last decade, which we're not, which we obviously don't today globally. China was subsidizing cheap coal to make a lot of these um, various technologies. And not only were they subsidizing the, the energy side, they were subsidizing flooding their, those manufacturers with money in China because they wanted to undercut the competition in Europe and the U.S. And they were successful. They basically bled Europe dry. There's very few, so if any, I don't, I'm not aware of any solar manufacturers in Europe that are left. They've all left and gone to China. Wind turbine manufacturers, there's a few big ones still left, but those are now losing money hand over fist. And those are, are going to be gone soon. The same thing in the U.S. We have a little bit, a little bit more capacity in the U.S. for solar, uh, but that has dwindled to like a trickle. Um, it's basically the whole supply chain is now in China, right? And there's this understanding that it's not complete. Where you know most people have heard the stat like 80% of the solar panels come from China, right? Which sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but that's really not the whole story because the components that make that the the polysilicon the solar-grade polysilicon that goes into making that solar panel, when you actually look at the wafer or the solar ingots, et cetera, that, that get assembled into that, now we're talking about near 99% are made in China. And a lot of it is made in Xinjiang, where there's 45% of the polygrade solar uh, polysilicon is made with slaves. So that's another reason your solar panels have gone down 80%. Um, not only is China overly subsidizing the energy and subsidizing the manufacturing, but now you have slave labor that is producing 45% of the solar-grade polysilicon. And it's even worse than that. They don't even have real transparent tracking to know if your solar panel has slave labor components in it or not because that polysilicon gets blended with other polysilicon and there's no way to ex extract it or to, to trace it. So it's kind of ironic to me that a lot of the people that are talking about these ESG virtue signaling um, initiatives and they're worried about how many women are on a board um, don't mind about slaves making their solar panels. I mean, that, that's kind of <laughs> insane when you think about it, because that's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about like cheap labor in factories. I'm talking about concentration camps, forced imprisonment, where you were forced to go work in a factory. That's what we're talking about here. Um, so that's the, the social impact of making solar panels. And when we're talking about 95% of these core components are made there, now you layer in, well, how, do, how does that work for energy security, right? You know, do we want our whole energy system beholden on China, 
our, our biggest strategic adversary in the world today, the most powerful adversary, we're going to base that on when these systems only last like 20 years at the best, in the best case, and we need to replace these things. I mean, that makes no sense from a, not only a cost, but energy security standpoint. So these are not getting cheaper anymore. They were for all the reasons I just described. Um, and basically, you know, a lot of cheap labor, a lot of cheap coal, and a lot of subsidies from China that were helping to drive down the cost. And the last thing is low interest rates. People forget we were in a historic last decade state of low interest rates, cheap money, right? And that contributed to being able to produce these cheaper. Now we got higher interest rates, commodity inflation. Um, all of these things are making the cost of making a wind turbine and a solar panel more expensive. And I'm, I'm kind of bought into Lynn Alden's view of this, of the 2020s being more like the 2040s and that we're likely to see this commodity inflation, energy inflation for the remainder of the decade. So if you believe that hypothesis is true, how in the world is the cost of a solar panel and wind turbine going to go down? It's only going to go up, right? And the higher the cost of energy for oil and gas, the more incentive there is to drill for it. So that's another fallacy that people have about it, right? They think, well, if we just jack up the cost of fossil fuel energy, that'll make more people want to buy wind and solar. It's just the opposite. All that's going to do is increase the cost of the panels and the wind turbines, and it's going to create greater incentives for the oil and gas industry to produce more oil and gas. Yeah. Critical thinking. <laughs> it's lacking these <laughs> or days. Or lack yeah. yeah. No, but it's... It's very, in terms of energy security too, that's the most frustrating part. Uh, you mentioned the immense privilege we have here in the United States, just purely on the landscape and the, the resources that we have below our feet here. And there's this, again, this political unwillingness and this virtue signaling that's not allowing us to tap into it. And like you mentioned with uh, Mike Umbro and Kern County, and the, the barrel oil he produces is arguably the quote unquote cleanest barrel of oil that you can produce in the world. And, and there's other companies out there. I, I saw that you recently wrote a report on uh, Liberty. Uh, we've had Chris Wright, the CEO of Liberty Oil, on the podcast before. And what they're doing in terms of being a, a very efficient and, and quote-unquote clean uh, oil and gas producer is something that should be celebrated. But again, for some reason or another, there's this theme here in the United States where, where the oil and gas industry here on our land has been completely demonized when it, compared to the rest of the world, the way that we produce oil and gas is arguably the cleanest way that it can be produced. And so you would think that we would champion that and try to bring about more of that. And I, and I really like that you highlighted what Chris and the team at Liberty are doing specifically. Yeah. And this is why shows like yours are so important and all the other folks that are trying to champion these ideas, because I think the biggest problem we face today in this whole uh, mess we're in is around storytelling is around the narrative, right? Because we we have a lot of people buying into a false narrative that is not grounded in physics and economics, and that is really threatens to destroy all the prosperity that we built. We're basically like spoiled rich kids living off past generational wealth um, and and not contributing, and and we're just eroding and eroding the quality and the reliability of our energy system every day. And it has dire consequences, especially for the poorest among us. So um, I think, you know, having people like yourself being very outspoken on this is incredibly important. And again, that's why I decided to speak up because these issues are just way too important. And so this this narrative 
has put fossil fuels as the villains, is these greedy companies that are exploiting the land, exploiting our water, and everything, doing whatever it takes to get them. In, the act, in, in reality, the opposite is true. Um, the fossil fuel companies are the heroes in this story. Um, now, they're not perfect. I'm not trying to paint that the fossil fuel industry has been perfect all along. They've made mistakes. Um, they, they, and they have work to do still to, to help capture more methane emissions, for example, um, from various drilling sites, et cetera. But the reality is they're the ones, they are kind of the backbone of human civilization right now. They're propping us up. Um, and so instead of being grateful and just in giving them incentives to, to um, increase their efficiency and operate domestically, we're doing exactly the opposite because of this narrative. And so that's why I think storytelling is so important in this. And, and we know this. I mean, this is how Hollywood works. Disney works. Every brand on the planet works. People don't buy Apple computers because of tech specs, right? That, oh, look how much this can process and how, how it's fast it is. You know, it, Nike doesn't sell clothes or rackets based upon how many athletes use their product. They sell Tiger Woods or Serena Williams going on this hero's journey and overcoming these amazing odds and, and being champions. And that's what we need to get back to. We need to tell the stories because the physics and economics are on our side, right? All the data, all the science, all, all of the foundational elements are there. What I think the energy industry is lacking is effective storytelling, right? They're, they're incredibly talented scientists, technologists, engineers, um, and they're just bad at storytelling, <laughs> to be blunt about it. Um, and so we need more people telling this story. What do you like about Liberty Story specifically? I think Liberty Story is uh, one of the best to showcase because Chris Wright, in his background, he actually worked on solar and various renewable energy systems and, and nuclear early in his career. That's where the genesis of it. So he wasn't even coming into it, oh, I want to be an oil and gas executive. He was just inspired by kind of this bold vision of a clean energy future, really. And I think what he's done with Liberty is a great example. Well, first of all, Chris had a big role in in helping to develop and and kind of implement the original fracking revolution, right? Um, his company was doing a lot of the testing diagnostics underground to kind of help facilitate um, fracking to happen. So he played a pivotal role in that. And there's no doubt. I mean, we already know that the biggest emissions reductions in the United States um, over you know, the last 20 years of, of from a CO2 lens have come from switching from coal to natural gas. They've not come from solar and wind. So 61% of the emissions are, are from that switch to natural gas. And a lot of that is due to fracking. So Chris's role in kind of early in the fracking revolution, but then creating a company that is employing American jobs, American people here, and producing kind of oil and domestic oil and gas for all the reasons I illustrated earlier about how that on all of these criteria, when we look at energy security, reliability, affordability, emissions, land use, all those things, you know, um, an oil and gas operation can operate like almost on a postage stamp, right, compared to a lot of these energy sources. They, they have limited disruption of the surrounding ecosystem. They're basically just drilling down deep into the earth. Um, and so I think their story is illustrative, and Chris does a fantastic job of talking about how energy is the the basis of all human progress and human flourishing, right? He does a fantastic job of telling the story. A lot of energy executives, unfortunately, have put their head in the sand and just think no one's going to bother them if they just keep going along the same path. And clearly that strategy is not working. 
right? I think we can all admit that um, we've kind of lost the narrative here right now. Uh, and we have some work to do to overcome a lot of this momentum that unfortunately is rolling down the, down the path. Yeah. And, uh, and another specific thing that I like about Chris and what Liberty is doing to educate the public is to highlight is how many end products that we use involve hydrocarbons, right? Like his campaign against North Face when North Face came out heavily against oil and gas, uh, he, he highlighted that it was extremely hypocritical hypocritical of North Face because a lot of the products that they sell to the end consumer are made predominantly of hydrocarbons. Yeah, I think that's a great example, actually. And the, the genesis of that is there was a company called Innovex Downhole Solutions. The CEO is Adam Anderson. He's a great guy. I've, I met him recently. And, um, and Adam just wanted to make a co-branded North Face jacket for his employees, you know, they have it because he loved the, he thought the quality of North Face jackets were great. He just wanted to put Innovex Downhole Solutions as a little logo on it for a Christmas present. That was what all he wanted to do. And North Face came back and said, no, we're not going to co-brand it. We're not going to, we don't want your logo on our jackets because you are a fossil fuel company and we think you are a villain and you are bad. And he was like, this is insane. So he wrote a letter to the CEO of North Face. The industry came together. Um, created those billboards that basically said, you look great in that puffer jacket. Because the reality is, all of North Face's products, to my knowledge, I, I can't think of a single North Face product, whether it's a tent, a sleeping bag, a backpack, or, or down to a, uh, a shirt or shorts, all of it is made from fossil fuels. So what the hell are they talking about? I mean, they wouldn't even exist as a company without companies like Innovex Downhole Solutions. Um, and here, they won't even put their brand on a jacket Right. And so and then Chris um, was a part of that, obviously, that industry response and created that viral video. Um, but that, I think, is a fantastic example of pointing out the hypocrisy. Like this, the story is obvious. Anyone that can't see that North Face products are all made using oil and gas is is either just completely ignorant or willfully blind uh, not to, to see that reality. And so we have to highlight that. We have to point this out to people that everything, everything around me right now, everything I'm touching from this microphone to the clothes I'm wearing to the desk to my lights, everything is made from oil and gas, right? It, there's, there's very few things. You, could, you couldn't even go an hour, I don't think, in your day without touching dozens of things made from oil and gas. Yeah, unless you're sleeping in the woods naked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you wouldn't be very comfortable. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, uh, I'm hope, I hope these, I'm very happy that you came on, that you're telling the story that you, you are, because I think considering your, your background, your experience and the hero's journey that you've gone through yourself is a very powerful story to get out there to people. I, I do completely 100% agree that the world that we live in today is very much narrative driven and uh, the people on the side of reliable energy production and delivery have not been telling a good narrative for a couple decades at least and it's time to to begin counterpunching on the narrative front because like we've been saying throughout this whole conversation human lives depend on it yeah and that's what i'm trying to do with my twitter um is just put out a lot of content every day so people can see these stories or kind of c combat some of these false narratives that are out there. I'm trying to write long form articles and, and publish in various trade media and other magazines just to people can go to my website to briangit.com if they want to see some of the long form articles or my Twitter is at briangit. Um, those are ways that people can find me and, and see some of this content. But ultimately, uh, I just want to spread this as far and wide as I can. 
And I really appreciate folks like yourself having me on. Alex Epstein has been a, a really great supporter. And he invited me down to Southern California for an event down there to meet uh, Peter Thiel and a bunch of uh, energy executives. He's been very supportive. Michael Schellenberger and uh, many others. And so I, I think we really need to amplify as many voices as possible and, and build this coalition. You know, we really need to, to build a movement around this. Um, and this can't just be kind of a hodgepodge effort of a few voices here and there. I mean, we need to be, we're in an ideological war and whoever tells the best story wins ultimately. I mean, that's what we're facing. And we need to build a movement that is coalescing around this and bringing in as many people that have different backgrounds and, and connections and resources as possible to combat these false narratives. Yes, I completely agree. And I guess this is a Bitcoin podcast and I've came to this discussion via Bitcoin mining specifically. I, I've seen you intermingling more with uh, the Bitcoin sphere. What are, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Do you see and uh, do you agree with the ways in which the Bitcoin mining industry is highlighting that it, it can help out on, in terms of energy efficiency? I think the Bitcoin mining console is making the same mistake that I made. Um, you know, <laughs> I would agree there. <laughs> basically, um, I think that they're, you know, I, I think many of them, I'm sure, are well-intentioned and, and kind of looking at this from a pragmatic standpoint, thinking that, well, we have to check this ESG box. But I think they're really seeding the playing field and making a strategic error. Um, because for every, we've been talking for an hour about all of the deficiencies of this low-grade, inefficient, over-consuming, polluting power source that is solar and wind power. Um, solar and wind um, are not going to be able to solve this problem. And I think it is just going to um, fuel this ESG effort and in, in these false narratives by just kowtowing to them and saying, well, look how much how much Bitcoin mining is happening using solar and wind power, because that is not the solution to this. If again, zooming out, what is our goal? We're trying to protect and improve human lives, protect and improve the environment. Um, we know that solar and wind are not the most effective tools to get us there. Uh, we know that nuclear and natural gas are the most effective tools to get us there. That doesn't mean that we can stop burning coal everywhere. Obviously in India and in China, they're going to be burning coal and they're going to burn coal for decades actually. But in certainly in more developed countries, we should be accelerating towards natural switching from coal to natural gas and, and then into nuclear as much as possible. Um, and then I think Bitcoin miners holding up, basically propping up this false narrative around solar and wind is not helpful, right? It's counterproductive. And all it's going to do is just increase the service of the attack vector. Because you think they're going to wait, you know, once, once, Let's just say you have 90% of all the Bitcoin mining is all renewables. You think they're going to somehow just leave you alone? I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. They're then not going to leave you alone. Then it turns to, oh, the Bitcoin miners using the renewables that could be used elsewhere. <laughs> I right. mean, that's another, that's another drum I've been beating uh, in the industry specifically is stop doing this. Stop kowtowing. Right. It's nothing's ever going to be good enough for for these people. It won't because they don't think that Bitcoin has value. And if you don't think Bitcoin has value, then no energy investment in, in it makes any sense. Right. I mean, so that's the core issue. And I, I think the more engagement on this is, is a really big strategic error um, going down that, going down that path. Yeah. Do you think Bitcoin has value? <laughs> yeah. I, I put a substantial part of my net worth in Bitcoin about, uh, about a year and a half ago, 
I really, when a lot of these ideas started to gel after many years of kind of building up and taking shape, um, I, I took, you know, basically a, a quarter of my net worth um, and invested it in specific traditional energy companies uh, and a quarter of it into Bitcoin. And so I am huge Bitcoin bull, um, you know, big believer in it. Um, you've been very helpful in helping educate me on my journey in, in the Bitcoin space as well as others. And uh, so, yeah, I'm all in on Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. Love to hear that. No, I love to hear that you got some value from this show. Um, no, it's... And that's like like Bitcoin mining specifically. Like it, it can uh, it, people focus on wind and solar. Like oh, it's going to incentivize the build out of that. And I'm like no. Like we should be drilling more efficiently. We can we can bring more oil to market. Maybe we have a first buyer of nuclear energy while while reactors are waiting for transmission lines to get built out. Like that's where I like to focus the narrative is like the future of the cheap, abundant, secure energy system here in the United States and Bitcoin mining can definitely play a part in that. But I, I completely agree. I think the Bitcoin mining council and uh, those in the industry who are pointing like, Hey, look how many renewables we're using are, are making a, I don't think it's going to be a fatal mistake. Maybe it's a fatal mistake for them in the long run, but um, it is a, a big error in terms of narrative and right. we, we need to begin pushing back. Energy is good. Human flourishing is good. Like you can't, push humanity forward without more energy. And that's something that people just need to come to grips with, accept. And with that acceptance, go forth saying, all right, how do we do this as efficiently and as clean as possible? Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you around this narrative of Bitcoin acting as this kind of uh, first right of refusal to go offline when there's a power emergency, almost acting like this battery storage for the grid. To me, that makes no sense from a variety of standpoints, but just from a strict Bitcoin mining perspective, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this because the whole point of being a miner is to optimize use of the machines, right? Into You want to be running 24-7 as much as possible. So to consciously design a system to support, let's say, a solar farm out somewhere where you know that you're only going to have sun 8 to 10 hours a day and you know you're going to be offline or you're going to have to use grid resources the rest of the time, uh, or have more downtime, why would any Bitcoin miner even contemplate that? That doesn't even make sense to me. It, it, it doesn't to me either. Um, that's why I focus, that's, that's why I like off-grid natural gas, because you can get a sustained stream of gas that doesn't have any competition in terms of buyers and the operations that I run uh, have very high uptime because we're not competing with anybody else for that electricity source. I mean, there is, when it comes to like demand response, like I think demand response makes sense uh, on grid when you have a reliable baseload. Like if you have a nuclear power plant that you want uh, to produce for peak demand, um, I think it makes sense to have Bitcoin miners eat up that excess capacity when peak demand isn't here. And then when peak demand does arrive and you need to shut down, uh, it makes sense if you're engaged uh, in a contract that allows you to sell that electricity to grid at the market price at that given point in time so that your uh, lost Bitcoin revenue is uh, supplanted by electricity um, selling revenue. That makes sense mm -hmm. to me. But again, there's a lot of nuance. Yeah, when it comes to operating a mining operation purely on solar or wind, that the, the downtime alone like would make it completely uneconomical in my mind. Um, I... With that being said, I personally just have not um, um, uh, 
read any of those proposals or explored that just because I have that, um, that thought off the bat. It's not reliable, so I'm going to go focus on natural gas it has been my mentality. But yeah, like just from a pure um, analysis standpoint, the unreliability and the downtime that comes with wind and solar. Just for me, as somebody who's investing in mining computers and power generation, like that's too much of a, of a risk for me personally. Yeah, it seems like it'll cannibalize the economics. I mean, I get it that it can be Bitcoin miners can be a useful asset to the grid in an emergency, like in a in a really critical time, like in Texas, where the whole thing is going to shut down. And if you can shut down Bitcoin miners, then great. That's a, a fantastic service can provide the grid. But it doesn't seem like that should be the overarching design principle where you're trying to optimize around that or that you want to design your your Bitcoin mining operation to try to leverage those kinds of situations as much as that should be such a um, infrequent uh, occasion that, to ever happen. Right. I mean, I, I just don't understand this kind of whole mode of pitching. Bitcoin mining is this great way to kind of moderate and kind of deal with this unreliability of renewables. Yes. Yeah. And again, the nuance, like I think it makes sense with something like nuclear and that gas power plants, like turn off, sell the electricity as long as you're, uh, supplanting that that mining revenue with U.S. dollar revenue from the electricity costs that makes sense. But yeah, the <clears throat> that's what I worry about here in Texas. Like again, I have no skin in the mining game in Texas in terms of operations. All my operations are elsewhere throughout the country. Uh, but I have skin in the game as a Texas resident, and I see a lot of the Bitcoin miners going throughout West Texas and other parts of the state and saying, "Yes, well, you can build that wind plant, that wind farm, that solar." farm um, will will come in and buy that electricity uh, and as a Texan uh, that perturbs me a bit because it's like no we should be incentivizing the build out of more reliable baseload in, in nuclear right. natural gas maybe potentially clean coal um, if we can get it like I'm, they're talking about rolling blackouts here this summer and I'm about to have a newborn baby I'm like I don't want to be in 110 degree heat and the, the air conditioning go off when I have a newborn. <laughs> we should not be pushing the expansion of these unreliable sources uh, in favor of, of reliable sources. Like it is, is, again, there's a lot of category errors that are that many are falling down, uh, particularly here in Texas. And I mean, the Texas mining meme is a big one right now. And I, I do think, and that's the other thing that I've been warning people in the industry and uh, those at the Bitcoin Mining Council have been pushing this narrative is like you're setting yourself up for a big narrative fail in the future because imagine if all this unreliable capacity gets built out and miners were the ones championing it and you have grid instability in the future like they're going to point and like people are like what the hell why did you incentivize this um, yeah it's and that's happening I mean in Texas 34 billion dollars is going to subsidize renewables on the grid I mean this is massive of subsidies and what that's doing they're acting like parasites because all of the all of the incentives are pushing people to invest in solar and wind in west Texas, which is great for those developers but it's horrendous for the residents of texas and the business of, of, of texas because what that's doing is cannibalizing the other thermal power plants and asset making them more economically unviable because they're operating the way that the system is designed the renewable resources get first preference onto the grid they can actually sell their power into the grid at a loss because they make it up in all of the subsidies they get. So that makes the other thermal power plants, like a natural gas plant, run less amount during the year. 
eroding the economics of keeping that plant maintained and operating, um, destroying any incentive to build a, a thermal power plant based on fossil energy in, in Texas, because all of these preferences and subsidies to renewables, right? And so what's happening is the grid is becoming more and more fragile, more and more unreliable. Um, and just, just by overbuilding renewables is not going to solve that reliability problem. It just makes it, it's creating more chaos in the system, right? I mean, electricity in the energy system is trying to bring, um, bring order to the chaos of our world, right? I mean, that's what energy does. But we're doing the exact opposite by loading up on all of these unreliable uh, distributed generation energy sources, we're introducing more complexity, more chaos that has to be managed and eroding the economics of our stable thermal baseload, right? And this is a, a, is a colossal failure of um, vision and strategy because it's, people are going to die, number one. And number two, it's going to erode the, the economic kind of foundation of businesses being able to operate effectively. Uh, it's not just Texas. We're seeing this in California. Uh, as well, where I'm sitting. So this is this is a huge problem, and it's going to have massive consequences. I completely agree. Well, people, please wake up to <laughs> reality and and begin focusing on reliability over virtue signals. So that's the other thing, like subsidies. Like if I believe it was Trump, might have been Biden, but somebody extended the renewable energy credits uh, that that are a lot of which is subsidizing this build out. Like what happens when those subsidies dry up? Like, do you like think about the, the problem that like, uh, God, God forbid the, I mean, well, if we want efficient markets, I don't think the subsidies should exist, but like when the subsidies run out and it becomes glaringly obvious that these, these operations are not profitable at all. You're just going to have a bunch of uh, solar panels and, and wind turbines sitting in the middle of, of the country doing nothing, right? It's already happening. Um, and this is happening in Europe uh, to some degree today. What they've found, um, the Renewable Energy Foundation did some analysis on wind turbines in the UK and other parts of Europe. And these are prime, air, I mean, there's more wind uh, capacity and power there almost anywhere in the world in some of these locations. And what they found is even in these very desirable areas with lots of wind resource, that after about 16 years, a wind turbine degrades in its kind of generational capacity and efficiency. For offshore wind, it's 50% of the output of when it was built, right? So after 16 years, it's just degrading slowly, slowly, and about 50%. For onshore, it's about 30, I think it's 37% um, less output after 16 years. And then once they, so the, the maintenance goes sky high, right? Because it takes a lot more. You, first of all, it makes no sense in an offshore seawater environment. Of course, you're going to have tons of corrosion, all of this kind of impacts of the weather on, the, on this machine. Um, so it's, it takes a lot of money and time and effort to keep them running, especially as they get older and older and have less output. But then you take away that, that tax credit in that subsidy, then it just doesn't make any sense to keep them running. So a lot of the the false assumptions around levelized cost of energy that we see all of the, over the place, they assume these wind turbines are going to last for like 30 years. When they're not, they're going to be taken off of out of operation to be generous after 20, but some of them are going to be well before that, just because it's going to cost too much to operate them and they're not going to continue to get 
the the subsidies after that. And once that stops, there's no reason to run them. So the whole industry will collapse if it doesn't have, it's not propped up by all these tax incentives and subsidies. Yeah, the LCOE is something that people really lean into. Like, look, look at the LCOE. Uh, it makes sense economically. That's game. Yeah, it's, it's, it's apples and oranges. It's, it's just a totally just disingenuous way to compare energy sources um, because solar and wind power act as expensive, wasteful add-ons to the grid for all the reasons we talked about. They don't provide storage or these reliability functions to the grid. And so how are you going to – it's like if you have two cars. Let's say you're going to buy two cars. In one car, you can drive for, let's say, eight hours a day during certain time periods um, and that's it. So too bad if you need to go somewhere at night or if you, can, you need to go for a longer distance or something. Um, the other car that you have the option to buy, you can run 24-7, 365, right? Are the, is the value of those two cars the same? Of course not. No one's going to put the value of those two cars the same. But for some crazy reason, we, that's what we're doing when we are saying so-called levelized cost of energy. We're comparing a solar farm and a natural gas power plant as having the same value. It's, it's insane. Um, it, it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like taking the cars out, like you have a propane tank and a solar panel and you want to fire up a, a grill at night or I mean, create energy to create electricity on a camping site. Like the solar panel is not going to work for you, obviously. And you know, the sad thing about this intermittent reliability issues, there was a, a, a study that was looked into this case with Duke Energy in North Carolina. What they found is that because they were ramping up the power plant up and down. Um, I same way as you drive a car, right? When you're on the highway, you get better gas mileage versus in the city, you're stop starting, stop starting. Every time you hit a stop sign or stoplight, you use more fuel, right? When you're stopping and starting. Same thing with the power plant. When you have to ramp up and down the natural gas power plant to accommodate for when the solar is on and off and clouds are moving over and, uh, or wind is intermittent, basically you are using fuel natural gas inefficiently and you're actually generating more emissions than if you were just running the natural gas plant at even keel the whole way. So what they found was that air pollution went up with the amount of solar penetration in their service territory, which is crazy. Like the whole reason supposedly you're putting a solar farm in is to reduce air pollution and CO2. I don't really can't think of any other reason why you would do it. And here, because it's forcing the power plant to operate in this very efficient, inefficient manner, you're actually increasing the air pollution than if you would have just run natural gas in the first place, right? So um, this is just destroys the the whole value proposition. Yeah, and, and that, that story is mind-boggling. I got into a debate with with a Bitcoiner. It's like that's not true. I'm like, no, it is. Like, here's the Duke Energy, and then they go, well, they're they're just trying <laughs> they're just trying to bes- besmirch solar so that oil and natural gas. Uh, is favored over solar, but it's like no, like just think about it. Like like you just said, like when you start and stop, like you're going to create excess emissions. It's just the way these things work. Like it would make much more sense to just run the nat gas power plant twenty four seven three sixty five and deliver that energy to people instead of virtue signaling about this. And then like when it comes to like EVs and charging stations, that's another thing. People just think, oh, I have this electric car. Like it is a hundred percent renewable and, and using clean energy, but like those charging stations are powered by something at the end of the day. Yeah, right? all your electric vehicles just shift the emissions from the tailpipe to the power plant, which can be more efficient. I'm, I'm not totally anti-electric vehicles in all cases, but you, you're you not basically avoiding the emissions. They're getting burned somewhere. So if you're, if, if you're burning coal, 
to create energy to charge your electric car. Don't pretend that somehow you're not having the emissions associated with the coal. The, the problem with electric vehicles is that the embodied energy to create them is so high. And you even look at Tesla's annual report or any of these car makers' reports, they all admit that there's a lot more in, embodied energy and CO2 out of the factory than a traditional internal combustion vehicle of a similar size, make, model, weight, et cetera, right? They all admit that. And then the debate comes in, well, how long do you have to drive it before it makes up for that debt, right? That that extra energy. Because because of a, the weight of a, a electric vehicle battery, it's a, typically about 1,000 pounds. So you have all these minerals of cobalt and um, lithium, et cetera, that are going into the battery. Well, now you have 1,000 pounds in the vehicle, you have to increase the thickness of the structure of the steel, the aluminum of the frame of the car, you have to, and that takes a lot of embodied energy to make that, right? So you, it's all compounding to use more energy up front than a traditional vehicle. And then it depends on, again, where the energy is coming from to, to charge it, how often it's driven, et cetera, how long it's driven. Um, and a big problem too, is a lot of the electric vehicle charging stations aren't even working. There was a a recent report out in the Bay Area that 20, someone did a survey of all the electric vehicle charging stations that 23% of them didn't work when they went to go charge the vehicle for a variety of reasons, like the, the screen interface was down or the, the cord was too short to reach the car. They had a whole bunch of different connection issues, et cetera. But so there's all these issues surrounding. I, I'm not against inherently the idea of electric vehicles, but to pretend that they're a better technology today when they take obviously a long time to to kind of recharge versus a traditional gasoline car, they're limited in range. They still have a lot of these emission issues that you have to figure out, um, and they cost more. There's no there's as gasoline prices go up, you see people saying, "Oh, this is why we should drive electric." Well, you're paying a lot more for the vehicle up front to begin with. So what are you talking about? You're you're basically just front loading your cost. Um, and you may or may not ever get that back, depending on how long you have the car, or how far you drive it. So it doesn't make sense from a lot of different perspectives. Yeah, talk about like another regressive tax. It's like telling telling poor people, oh, just drive an electric vehicle. Uh, <laughs> sorry, yeah. especially that these are subsidized. There's it's our taxpayer money, especially lower middle income people, are paying into the tax base that is subsidizing wealthy people to drive these vehicles. So that that just makes no sense. Yeah, virtue signaling all around. We need to get back to sanity. And I think you're helping us do that. Um, so, Brian, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. I really uh, appreciate not only having me on, but all of your thought leadership in the space. I've learned a ton for you over the years on my Bitcoin journey. And it's just such a pleasure to chat with you and talk about this stuff. No, well, again, the, the feeling is is mutual here. I mean, uh, the amount of quality information that you're putting out uh, on the energy sector has has helped me up my game as well. So this is a symbiotic re relationship here, <laughs> and uh, hopefully, um, we'll be able to do this again sometime, maybe even in person. And that would be incredible. I would love it. Yeah, let's do it. Well, I mean, you so you have your you have your website, BrianGrit dot com, correct? Uh huh. Um, yep. find Brian on Twitter at Brian Git. That's G I T T, two T's. Uh, keep crushing it, man. We're, I think we're gonna win. I think we're gonna shift the narrative. We just gotta get more of these conversations into more minds out there. 
Let's build this army. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Um, that's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. <laughs>